Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. That music means it's the Hillsdale Dialogue. We're doing it early today for the very specific reason that it's always four segments, but the last two segments of the show have Senator Lindsey Graham joining me to talk about judicial nominations. And it's the only time he was available before I go off on vacation, so I asked Matt Spaulding, the director of the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College, the Lantern of the North, but it has this lighthouse of Reed in in the shadow of the Capitol to join me. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. How are you? I'm terrific. I've got a buddy, Bob France, who's the uh, the Cleveland host, uh, the morning host in Cleveland, and he is driving mm-hmm. to Hillsdale as we speak to go to the um, the Scholars Weekend. Uh, what is that yes, deal? Good. What is the Scholars Weekend at Hillsdale? We have uh, several weekends. Include we also have one here. I'm getting ready for a few weekends where we bring in students that are high performing students that are thinking about going to other colleges. And we size them up and give them some additional scholarship and compete for them to come to Hillsdale College. Well, you know, I don't I think it's going to be harder and harder for students to get into Hillsdale College. It's become the last safe place. Did you see a conservative got punched in the (laughs) face at Berkeley yesterday? I saw that. I saw that. Um, And and they were upset because of this uh, this fake event out in in uh, Chicago. Uh, No, it's just getting worse and worse. Hillsdale's getting safer and safer and. It's getting harder, but we're getting better, and it's uh, the best place in the world to go. Now, I am older than you, Matt. It actually happens to be my birthday, and I note with this... I I heard that. Happy birthday. It's dismaying that Hillsdale didn't send me a card. Larry Orange just completely ignored me. It's really very dismaying. But on on my birthday, I'm reminded when I was in college in the 70s, it was a pretty political time. It was after Vietnam, but it was at the beginning of the boycott movement of South Africa, which eventually succeeded. Now we're dealing with BDS, which is a horrible, horrific, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, anti-American program. At Hillsdale College, is there a left? And if so, is it treated respectfully? Uh, there, well, there, there is in the sense that there's a left-right Republican-Democrat debate. It's treated respectfully. I have students right now with me that are uh, with the Democratic uh, Club on, on campus uh, we teach them the same thing. We talk about the same things because what we're trying to do is get to those underlying factors behind politics. But we have a healthy political debate. What we what we don't have uh, is is those kinds of intense disagreements which become impassioned, which is really a violation of the whole approach of what it means to be a university and to and to educate. It undermines the whole process. That's. It's not that there shouldn't be a healthy left-right debate. That's good for the educational system. It's good to debate ideas, especially the most important ideas. What's troubling is that so much of this has gotten to the point where uh, those positions are associated with intense passions, and it's become uh, really an irrational conversation. You know, when Bob was talking to me about where his daughter wanted to go, and we talked about Hillsdale, I said, it is the best education left in the country. And if my kids were younger and not older... I would steer them all there, but there was no water polo program. Would you please build a water polo program so my boys would have been there? But, but it's there, on our list. It's, it's on, our on list. your list. We've got to get someone to but give $50 million. It freezes in the winter, and we've got a problem. We need a $50 million donor to build an aquatic center at Hillsdale so that they can build the greatest swimming program in the land. Because Grand, uh, Grand Valley's got a great water polo program. But, we, but I mean, put that aside. It's the place to go, and, and I'm not shining you on. If you want your child to fully understand life, if you want them to actually learn how to learn and to fully enjoy life, there was a great line in T.S. White's 
uh, the once and future king. When you are unhappy, the only antidote is to learn something. He's right. Well, the, the most important thing about learning is, you, you see, we, at, at Hillsdale, you realize that it's not that we teach them. They learn. It's something about them, and it's becoming a, a full and flourishing human being when they, when they learn to think, because, of course, thinking itself is the highest activity of what it means to be human, and by thinking, you get to know the higher and more beautiful and greater goods uh, about uh, about truly being happy. So you're absolutely right. So it's a lifelong activity, and at Hilldale, we know how to get it started. Now, I, last question on this before we turn to Article 2, Section 4, yeah. and we're back in the Constitution. Uh, we are riveted by two stories today. Jesse Smollett faked his mm-hmm. uh, 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 assault and threw the city of Chicago and the national news media into a tizzy. And there was a white supremacist arrested in Annapolis who had an arsenal and a list of people who was basically the right wing's answer to the Bernie Sanders supporter who tried to kill everyone in Congress. Um, Both of those represent dysfunctions on the highest order, right? The Smollett case and the Nutter in Annapolis uh, uh, represent Nutters of the highest order. Do you think a good education is a guardrail against Nuttery? I do, but I'm curious what you think. Oh, no, absolutely. And I would uh, broaden it for the sake of our conversation here. A good education at the base of it, but also a well-formed understanding of what it means to be a citizen, which, of course, is grounded in a good education, uh, would shape this as well. We have always had vast disagreements of, and, and differences of opinion, uh, but, but they've become so distinct and sharp now. And then, but behind that, we have an additional problem connecting uh, those political opinions with uh, bad behavior. I mean, this, this is also a character formation problem. You need to learn at what point your disagreements don't uh, cross over into the area where you do something, in many cases illegal or violent, uh, as, as a result of that. So the education and the formation of, of one's character and the, and the moderation of one's passions is all of one one package. So you're absolutely right. It, it's based on this this deeper notion of, of, of education and just knowing yourself, moderating your own passions so you can moderate your political activities as well and point them towards the more important uh, national good, the common good, but also your own uh, good and how you act in life. You know, there was a uh, study this week that was very disheartening to Guy Benson and others about how illiterate Americans have become about basic civics. And by civics, we mean just how it works. The old video, uh, uh, the film strip, how a bill becomes law. Americans have really become ignorant. And I think back to the 1750s, the 1850s, the pre-war period, when every American knew every issue about nullification, about enslavement of people, about Lincoln. It was, we've just fallen off the ledge of learning. No, absolutely. This is one of the reasons why, as you know, in the last couple of iterations of immigration debates, I was intimately involved with rewriting the test for immigrants coming into the country on the grounds that that would actually be a great opening to have a broader conversation about what Americans should know, because Americans, as as a body, tend to actually know less than immigrants who take and pass the civics test. This is a, a very distinct problem, which goes directly into what we want to talk about, how can we have a civil conversation about extremely important questions, whether we should impeach the president, whether he's abused his powers, unless we actually know the structure by which we have that conversation? 
And let's go to that structure. Uh, which is the this, Constitution. Yeah, this process that I've been in with Dr. Arn and Dr. Spaulding for the last many months is we're actually reading the Constitution. What a, what a concept. Uh, it was intended to be read by farmers. It was written in large part by farmers, big, big plantation owners, but they were farmers. Some of them held slaves, but they were all literate and they were debated in state ratification conventions. And we have in Article 2, which is about the presidency, Section 4, which reads in its entirety, the president vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. What does that mean, Dr. Spaulding? Well, so the first thing I would point out to you, which I always like to tell my students, is where is it? Recall that that the power of impeachment is talked about in Article 1, right? The House has the power to impeach. The Senate has the power to convict. And here in Article 2, which is about the presidency, is where they actually put the clause about what, uh, what the crimes are. And that does something, and the placement there is important. The other thing the founders knew was their history. And they knew the recent history, which meant English history. And about 100 years prior to this, there was a problem in England. In English history, which they always oftentimes pointed themselves towards, there was this notion the House of Commons could accuse someone of a crime, and they could impeach people in office. In the American Constitution, we did two things. First of all, we got rid of bills of attainder. Congress can't accuse people, individuals of crimes. But the impeachment problem, they handled separately, because in England, you couldn't impeach the king. The head of state could not be impeached. And when Charles I was impeached by the, the, the broad parliament, he was eventually beheaded. He raised this problem. You can't impeach me. I'm your king. The Americans wanted to make sure this was put in Article 2. We can impeach our president. No one is above the law. So its, it's placement there, I think, is extremely important and significant which puts this on the table. One of the reasons we, one of the way we solve these rule of problem questions in America, we get rid of the monarchy, we constitutionalize the executive, an energetic executive, but you can still impeach the president. And when we come back, said that, we're going to talk about no, not hanging him, not decapitating him, but uh, it's that's, interesting. That's exactly where I was going to go. There are only certain things you can do. Yeah. When we come back, we'll continue on this because people need to understand what impeachment's about. In, in the glorious revolution of 1688, uh, on which a lot of the American revolutionary moment was based, as well as on the Cromwellian revolution, one ended in a beheading and one ended in an exile. And I think the, the path of history, Matt Spaulding, was towards exile, not towards beheading, because the Charles I beheading was truly a traumatic event for the English nation, and Cromwell was not a good man, even though he was a Puritan of the highest order. Would you agree with me he was not a good man? I, I, I agree, and I think that things like this and having seen that history, and the Americans knew that very intimately, this is again shows you how we took all those experiences and all that knowledge, and we figured out how to do it better and more consistent with the rule of law, and that's what we have today, and that's why we need to know that. Uh, especially right now, more than almost really almost more than ever. Uh, thus far, we've had four impeachments in the United States, actually three, but I think a fourth is pending. We'll talk about that with Dr. Matt Spaulding, the president of the Kirby Center, the head of the Kirby Center, the lantern of reason in the shadow of the Capitol, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. 
Welcome back, America Two here in the ReliefFactor.com studio, talking with Dr. Matt Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center, Hillsdale's Lighthouse of Reason in the Shadow of the Capitol. We are talking about Article Two, Section Four. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, a lot of questions arise about this because we're on the cusp of receiving the Mueller report. First of all, Matt Spaulding, you live in the swamp. You know the swamp. What do all the signs tell you about the Mueller report? Well, I I think it's uh, anticipated any moment, but it sounds like there's not going to be a a resolution having to do with collusion or any significant matters that uh, were previously feared uh, on the part of the administration. What we don't know is what will be in it. And, of course, we, we don't also know the additional question about how much of that will become public. But, but I think the, what, what I'm seeing right now is the extent to which the, the public discussion has been shifting. Less emphasis right now on the details expected or not expected in the report itself and more about how that could be used to set up broader, conver- uh, broader debates uh, going on in the House especially – uh, setting up the circumstances by which this might move towards an, impre- an impeachment charge, which gets into all sorts of other things that might be separate from, probably will be separate from what's actually in the Mueller report. So you're having other conversations, I think, building a broader case of which they hope this will be merely a part, but not the centerpiece. You see, I think it's kind of, if you've ever been to a circus, you'll see acrobats who stand and get propelled into the air. The Mueller report is going to propel some Democrats into the air. Whatever it says, right. it's, it's, it's their excuse to go forward and to begin. Elijah Cummings is like the master of this. He just mows down people with uh, calumny and, and just absolute outrageous charges. And they're all going, no matter what the Mueller report says, no one's going to pack up their tent, are they? No, I think that's right. I think there will be, and, and I think the report will be written uh, creatively in, in a way to precisely do this, to con- continue to give it life. Both sides will have plenty of things to point to. So on the one hand, there won't be things in there, I don't think, about uh, collusion. Uh, there won't be cr- additional things found that point in that direction. But they'll probably find some other irregularities and things like that, which will allow the 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 left, the Democrats, to use it in their favor. Remember, a lot of what they're doing in terms of putting together hearings are things around the edges of the Mueller report, uh, some of it pointing back to pre-presidential activities, which are not subject to impeachment. Um, But they're putting together a case, I think, moving in that direction if they want to proceed. And and I I think they've gotten to the point where they, they realize the Mueller report probably will not give them something substantive to to augment that, but we got to use it to keep our narrative going. That is, in fact, what I took away last week. Uh, Elijah Cummings, uh, uh, who is the uh, ranking member of the, uh, he's the chairman of the Government Operations Subcommittee. Uh, he sent a very unfair letter uh, about lawyers for President Trump, one of whom has got like almost tangential relation to this. And Congressman Jim Jordan and ranking members of Mark Meadow yesterday blasted Cummings, and they also blasted the Office of Direct Government Ethics Director, Emory Rounds, for not telling us. I mean, they, they will just slander people uh, left and right, and they're doing so under the cover of the Mueller report, no matter what the Mueller report says. It's just a, it's a launching pad. 
No, absolutely. Which, which, and in some extent, this kind of points us back to a broader question here. Looking back to our clauses, uh, recall that this this impeachment is a constitutional duty or, or an activity coming from the House, going to the Senate, but it's ultimately a political question, which gets us back to this nebulous question about what is a high crime and misdemeanor. Well, generally speaking. The question is, how far can you put it, push it in the House, and how far can you go to get a majority to claim that it's a, a violation, setting up the, the, the context for an impeachment? And, and my view has always been an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House says it is. Do you agree yeah, with that's, me? That's what, uh, I, I, I completely agree. That's what uh, the famous Gerald Ford questioned back when he was in, in Congress. It's whatever you can get a majority to agree on in the House. And then the technical details don't really get determined until you go to the Senate. And they might decide not to convict. But the House can, can uh, use it very broadly. Bribery and treason, okay. But high crimes and misdemeanor can be broadly abuse. Uh, we, we do know it really has to do with time during the presidency. You can't reach back to pre-presidential activities. Uh, you, you can't indict a sitting president for a crime. But the House has a lot of room there to make broad abuse charges. And I think that if you look at all the particulars they're looking at now, I think they've actually moved away from the technical constitutional questions. I don't think the emoluments clause uh, violation or supposed violation is really going anywhere. But I do see them moving towards a broader abuse argument. That's what uh, Jerry Nadd, a lot of his quotes suggested that. And when we come back, we're going to go through Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, the three impeachments of presidents. Donald Trump's will be the fourth proceedings. And we'll talk of the serious ones. And we'll talk about them with Dr. Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center. All things Hillsdale are available at hillsdale.edu. You can, in fact, sign up for the absolutely free speech digest in Primus there. The Victor Davis Hanson and Larry Arndt series on World War II. The Second World Wars is there. All of their online courses. And if you want to binge, listen to the best in radio. Go to HughForHillsdale.com. All the Hillsdale dialogues dating back to 2013 are collected there for your easy listening pleasure. Stay tuned. Dr. Spaulding is coming back. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to the rest of the globe listening on HughHewitt.com and everyone watching on the universe. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. It is everyone knows the last radio hour of the week. That means the Hillsdale Dialogue. We began it early because at the bottom of the hour, Senator Lindsey Graham is joining me to talk about judicial confirmations in Syria. So we had to make some time. And Dr. Matt Spaulding, the director of the Kirby Center, generously agreed to start a half hour early so we could cover the ground. Dr. Spaulding, we are talking about Article 2, Section 4, the Impeachment Clause. Let's go back in history for people. Let's go over the three examples from our 200-plus years of American history where this clause was invoked and the facts and circumstances thereof. It begins with the little-known successor to Abraham Lincoln, a man who ended up in the ticket on 1864, replacing, I think, Hamlin from Maine for political reasons, Andrew Johnson. Right. What was that all about? Right. Well, so, so the, the three we're talking about, you have, you have Johnson. Uh, before that, you had Chase on the Supreme Court, and then you have Clinton coming after. I actually think these three cases, historical, uh, in the way in the past, teach us something extremely significant about what's going on right now. Uh, in the case of, of, of Johnson, there's a question about uh, the removal of uh, someone in his cabinet uh, under the Tenure of Office Act. He wants to get rid of Edwin Stanton. Uh, 
this great Secretary of War who had served under Lincoln, there's a debate going on about Reconstruction. Uh, and the House doesn't like his policies, but they're using a piece of legislation, the Tenure Act, to go after him, and they impeach him based on that. Uh, and he narrowly, narrowly avoids um, being convicted in the Senate by one vote. So that one's actually pretty close. Now, that was a uh, purely was, political dispute, though. There was no malfeasance accused of Andrew Johnson. It goes to the, our earlier well, point. The, 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 my point is going to be, I'm going in the same direction, I think, which is that at least in this case, there was some claim of a legislative violation. They had something to hang their hat on. Uh, when you go back to the Chase one, which is the earlier um, uh, case of impeachment, where they went after a Supreme Court justice and impeached him, that one was completely political. There was no crime. There was no accusation of malfeasance. There was no underlying legislation. There was nothing. That one was completely political. And I think that's the one that's the model for today. But let's let's pause for a moment on Johnson, though, because I think it helps us understand what high crimes and misdemeanors are. It's actually a political dispute. It's a dispute between the radical Republicans and the Reconstructionist Congress and a Southern Democrat sort of Republican who's not in line with the radical Reconstructionists. And Lincoln probably would have been with Andrew Johnson. Do you think that, Matt Spaulding? No, I, I, I think that's right. I think Andrew Johnson, I think imperfectly he made some mistakes, was trying to implement Lincoln's view of Reconstruction up to a point. And like Lincoln... Uh, the, the, the hardcore Reconstructionists wanted to be much more harsh in the South, and there was a significant policy difference, and it was driven by political reasons. You're absolutely right about that. And what about Chase? Do you, this is not a president. We've had three presidential impeachments, but, and we've had, by the way, a lot of judicial impeachments when people are actually convicted of bribery and stuff like that. But Chase was another political impeachment, was it not? And, and well, that one was even more political, in my opinion, which is why I think it's an interesting question for today. So, so Chase is on the Supreme Court, uh, and he's uh, he comes in. He's a, I think he's appointed under the Adam by Adams. Uh, might actually go back to Washington. So it's at the very beginning. What's interesting thing about this case is there's another debate going on, a political debate that has virtually nothing to do with Chase. Now. Chase is, is uh, very open. Uh, he says what he thinks. He's got a hot temper. He's very political. But the, but the argument has nothing to do with the substance of his decisions. It's completely his, his, his political views. But think about what is going on at the same time. They've just impeached a district judge in New Hampshire. Uh, Pickering was his name. And they're going to go after Chase in exactly the same time Exactly the same time, Jefferson has become president, uh, James Marshall is the chief justice, and they are sitting and considering a Supreme Court case called Marbury versus Madison. Yep. And in the midst of that, Jefferson, the president of the United States, pushes the House, which has just gone Republican, meaning his Jeffersonian Republicans, to go after Pickering as a warning and then go after Chase to get him and there's, they're thinking about going after John Marshall. And they, they get pushback, though. It's like the court packing plan by Roosevelt 150 years later. There are rules and, and boundaries we do not transcend in ordinary times, one of which is the independence of the judiciary. Right. And in this case, they couldn't get the, the, the votes required in the Senate to convict him. And so that tells us that even there, there are some limits. 
you can't go uh, so far. You can't impeach someone merely because you don't like what they said or their political opinions or their temper or in modern parlance because of what they tweeted. Right. There has to be some substance. It has to be for a high crime or misdemeanor. There's still some notion there has to be something serious here. Um, but, you know, so these, these cases, I think, all kind of drive us and, and put on some parameters, uh, if you will, including the more rec- the recent case of Quentin. That tells us some things as well, I think. We're going to come to that. I, I want to point out to people that the person who presides over the impeachment proceedings is the chief justice. I have a column in The Washington Post this morning about the strategic discretion of John Roberts. Do you remember when Rehnquist rolled in with his brightly colored robe uh, for the impeachment yes, of Bill Clinton? Yes, with uh, the, his new robes, to make, to make the point of the judiciary. No, I, I think that's, uh, it's, I think it's, it's set up that way to give it a certain judicial sense about it, but it puts the, the, the chief justice in a, in a difficult spot. He needs to uh, make sure it's, 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 he's mostly focused on the procedure and the evidence in those kinds of things uh, is his main role, which, which Rehnquist writes about at great length. He actually did a little kind of a equivalent of a book on this question. And it's a very odd role for the chief justice. I'm sure Roberts is hoping this does not get out of the House because he will have to preside if it does. And I believe his strategic discretion, as I des- describe it, he would really hate to have the court involved in this one way or the other. Let's look first at Nixon. Now, I worked for Nixon from 78 to 80 and again from 89 to 91. I'm still close with the Nixon Foundation. I know intimately well the details of the impeachment. The articles were never passed, but they were going to pass. And had they passed, he would have all likelihood gotten the two-thirds vote to remove. What was that about, Matt Spaulding? Well, so so in in, in yeah, hey, I'm I'm talking to you about the Nixon case. <laughs> You're gonna know a lot more about this than than I do. Um, the the accusation here is, as I understand it, uh, is, is that uh, you know there were certain activities going on uh, within the the reelection campaign. There was uh, various activities that uh, reached the point where the question was, how much did Nixon know about? How much did he uh, approve of them, including a break-in, and the political pressure builds up against him. But I think that was a highly political case as well because they wanted to stop uh, Nixon's policies. It was a political uh, case that grew out of the Vietnam War, the abuse of power, the plumbers, all of that, the bombing of Cambodia. But it was all about politics. It wasn't about, uh, I want to contrast it with the Trump allegations, personal gain. No one ever accused Nixon of trying to use the office for personal gain. That, that was not the issue then. It wasn't the issue with Andrew Johnson. It wasn't the issue with Chase and Pickering. And so now we come to Clinton. What was the Clinton impeachment about? So, so the Clinton one, so he, here's where I get back to my earlier thoughts, which I think right now the way the current mindset in the House is, they were, they were thinking this was going to be something like Clinton which is we're going to get him on some technical, uh, legal, clear violations. The accusations against Clinton, the two that got through the House, the, the main articles had to do with lying to a grand jury and obstructing justice uh, uh, because of, of false affidavits and encouraging false testimony and these kinds of things. They were actual technical, vi- those are violations of the law, which uh, uh, was used to make the argument that he had not uh, fulfilled his oath of office. I think that's where they were going to start with the act, with the arguments against Trump. I think that those, you know, so you throw in something like the emoluments clause, a technical violation, 
But I think they have now since seen that those really aren't going anywhere. They, they've not had a uh, seen evidence of obstruction of justice. And so they're actually moving down this path towards a broader abuse claim, which is why I think these other examples moving back towards the chase argument or the, the model they're going to fall, follow, which is a broad abuse argument. Think about this um, declaration of emergency powers. They argue that that's an abuse and it was a yep. circumvention of congressional authority. Having said that, there is something there which makes the complicates the case, which was that there's congressional legislation upon which he is acting. When we come back, so we're going to talk about whether plan. or not President Trump has abused his powers. Because I think Matt Spaulding's on to something. I didn't know we agreed on this. I think the articles of impeachment are going to include, when the Democrats get around to it, a charge that he has abused his executive power pursuant to the Emergency Powers Act. That's where we conclude in the next segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Don't go anywhere except the Hillsdale.edu, America. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center in D.C., Hillsdale College, Lantern of Reason in the Shadow of the Capitol. Uh, Dr. Spaulding, I want to end, and all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale is at Hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for Imprimus today. I want to end by giving you sort of free range over five minutes to predict what's going to happen as a consequence of what I think is the inevitable demand of the Democratic base that the Democratic House majority impeach the president. Well, I, I think that that pressure will continue to build, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, my argument would be, my prediction would be, they're going to drive towards a very broad charge, as we talked about in our history of previous impeachment cases, back towards an, an, an abuse argument. And I'm increasingly of the opinion they're going to use the, the declaration of a national emergency to do so on the grounds that um, the president used this, uh, he, he did this as a way to circumvent a power of Congress, which is to appropriate monies. He did this way to circumvent the legislative power, and that's a usurpation and therefore an abuse of power. And I think they're going to try to make that the centerpiece of, of their argument. And in, and in doing so, I think they'll actually look back to another uh, Nixon president, precedent. If you recall, Nixon declared a national emergency in 71 concerning the financial reserves and uh, put in a 10% surcharge on certain imposts. He was sued to do that, uh, declared to declare the action invalid. They won at the trial court level. It goes to appeals to what is now the, essentially the circuit court. They reversed that the decision, uh, saying that this is an action we, the court, don't question. But they, they brought up this issue about some future president might broadly abuse this declaration of emergency powers. I think they'll go strongly in that direction drive that because they have this slightly <laughs> they have this slight problem, which is why I think the tactical argument doesn't work as well for them, is that in, in 76, also in the, the Nixon era, after the Nixon era, they passed an Emergency Procedures Act actually delegating to the president and by extension the administrative state the ability to declare emergencies. And that so was a statute. The, right that, so people understand that was passed yeah. by the House, passed by the Senate, signed by the president. It is a legitimate act. It is a legitimate statute. So they're going to get around that problem 
by not questioning the ability to declare the emergency, or uh, because the, the courts have said that's a political question. They don't question the existence of the legislation, uh, but, they're, but they're going to argue that he used it as a way to circumvent or get around a legitimate congressional power. Um, uh, he has said that he didn't have to do it. Uh, he's, his comments have not helped him. They'll use those against him. And they will argue this is a political question, not a technical legal question, a political question that uh, we're going to make this broad argument. I think they're going to set that up. So they will proceed down this path. Whether they proceed with it or not is always an open political question. But they want to make the this reelection campaign focus on that in the same way that I think the president wants to use the declaration of emergency powers to focus on the broad policy debate. They'll, they'll use the same thing, and this will be the reverse argument, and that'll, I think, at the very least, they would like to see all of that suck as much of the oxygen out of the room as possible. So they, so going down this path, they can make it to a big political argument. They'll have election consequences, and in order to make that point, I think there'll be a lot of pressure to actually proceed down this course. Well, last question, Matt Spalding. will be an overwhelming vote. vote to I, I, I hope they, they do. Control. I hope that we have one minute left. I hope they do this. I think it will be a disaster for the Democrats. I think it's imprudent in the extreme. What do you think? No, I, I think that's right. I think it probably would, would end up helping him because think about how this will, is framed. I'm not sure this is the uh, right constitutional way to, to go down this path at all, but the politics of it will be to focus the House on a political claim, but behind that political claim – president will be able to make a very strong argument about what he's trying to accomplish in the name of national security, which is about securing the borders. I think in that debate, it probably works out best for him, and, and the House looks pretty petty and small making a political argument rather than going after an actual legal violation or a constitutional violation of law. Matt Spaulding, Director, Dr. Matthew Spaulding, Director of the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College. Thank you. Remember, everything Hillsdale is at hillsdale.edu. All of my conversations collected at Hugh for Hillsdale since 2013 with our Hillsdale friends at Hugh for Hillsdale. And coming up, Lindsey Graham, Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Don't miss it. <laughs>